0: Welcome to episode 72 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken. My returning guest is the novelist Jacob Bacharach. He's a regular contributor to Gawker and The New Republic. He's joining me from his new home in Blacksburg, Virginia. Jacob,
1: welcome back to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I'm, I'm sorry that it couldn't be episode 73 to line up even more perfectly with the uh, Chilean coup, but uh, we'll, we'll have to make do with being one year off.
0: Our subject for today is part two of a series on the films of the Greek-French filmmaker Costa gavras 1972's State of Siege, set in Uruguay, but filmed in Chile during the democratic socialist rule of Salvador Allende. 1982's Missing is set in Chile in the aftermath of the Pinochet military coup, but was filmed in Mexico. These are two muckrakers that implicate and expose U.S. imperialism's involvement in the murders of American citizens. And they're two films that outraged the State Department when they were made.
1: Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> it's almost hard in a way to think about the the undiluted power of uh, film and screen media from, you know, let's say four, four and five decades ago, where a muckraking movie could outrage the state department. Um, I mean, now of course the state department just funds most of the movies that we (laughs) see in the United States, but um, or the DOD does anyway. Um, But uh, it's, it's kind of remarkable because it, it it feels like these types of uh, films if, and when they're made now sort of just uh, get immediately digested into the cultural machine and, and wouldn't have anything like the kind of impact that they had. But, um, but they, they tr- truly outraged uh, American authorities, from uh, Alexander Haig to, as we'll probably laugh about later, George F. Will <laughs> and everyone in between.
0: One thing that I am very nostalgic for when I watch a movie like Missing was that there was a time where a major American film studio would
1: put out a movie
0: that would make Alexander Haig angry. <laughs> that's
1: right well that that's because their tentpole blockbuster uh, didn't depend on um on them getting permission to do air force recruiting ads with brie larson um yeah. when 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 movie studios were m- mostly funded just by the sale of tickets in movie theaters so that's a, those glorious halcyon days
0: what I love about the best works of Costa Gavras is how politically astute they are. They're so full of moral clarity. They're so free of bullshit. But they're also films that function as thrilling cinema.
1: I think they're political. You're you're right that he's politically astute, and I think that he one of the things that makes him so is uh, that he is both a very earnest filmmaker in a lot of ways. I mean, he is he is invested um, in exposing the uh, horror felt by people who are subject to uh, to uh, coups and and uh, and government overthrows and 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 violent repression within their societies Um, but he also He's also skeptical in the, in the very best way. He, he skeptical in a way that I think our kind of modern, you know, intellectual dark web types would like to imagine that they are, but are, are not. He, he in fact actually is um, sort of immune to can and to conventional wisdom and, uh, and to received narratives. And it comes it comes through in his films. He he's got, and it's where I think some of the humor comes from. He's got like in Missing, as I think we'll talk about, the, the, his the way he's able to stage all of the scene and the scenes in the U.S. Embassy that are both horrifying but also kind of a little bit you know dark darkly comic. Um, all of that I think flows from his um, kind of gimlet eyed view of any any official line. Like
0: Costa-Gavras said that he never forgot that his role as a filmmaker was to entertain as well as
1: to inform. I, I mean can you think of a uh, of a better staged scene, well, series of scenes than the kidnapping <laughs> in State of Siege. I uh, you know the it which which is starts out totally chaotically uh, I mean, just these kind of cars randomly driving around, vehicles moving from place to place, shots of people leaving buildings and, and kind of moving through a cityscape, which gradually, over a period of, I mean, how, how long does that go on for? It must be almost like, twenty minutes. I mean, it mm-hmm. it really goes on, and uh, and gradually, gradually resolves itself into this really elegant ballet that is totally comprehensible you you understand exactly where everyone is coming from and where they're going and who's doing what uh, until the kind of the kind of coup de grace when they actually conduct actually three simultaneous kidnappings one of which then kind of fails in a sort of one of his great little comic moments when they toss the guy roll the guy up in a carpet but then just toss him out of the, out of the car because they realize that the, the that the cops are on to them um, and i think about you know uh, like a a contemporary heist movie or, or like the, uh, the, like the opening scene of Chris Nolan's dark Knight, you know, where the Joker is doing his big, his big, uh, heist. And, And they just don't have any of that same, that same verve or that same coherence. And like, that's a great filmmaker. Um, also great use of soundtrack in in that, in that long scene. So just there's so much tension and movement. It's really kinetic uh, and, and it, but it also tells you something, which is, it shows you both the, um, the, the, the careful attention to detail and planning, and also the, uh, paranoia of the Tukmaras, the, the, the revolutionaries or guerrillas, the, the, leftist, um, uh, opposition who are conducting this kidnapping, all, all of that done mostly through, through visual language. Mm-hmm.
0: One little fun fact, uh, Jacob, as we uh, are about to begin talking about state of siege and missing today in Ontario, where I live, uh, the premier of the province uh, this morning declared a state of emergency because of our trucker convoy uh, blocking off the ambassador bridge. Uh, Basically, he's been doing nothing about this for the last two weeks, hoping that it would all be Trudeau's fault eventually. But yesterday, the governor of Michigan threatened to send American tow trucks up to Canada to move the trucks since it didn't, nobody seemed to be doing anything about it in Ontario.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the lesson here is that uh, you can uh, you can fuck with the premier of Ontario and you can fuck with Justin Trudeau, but don't fuck with GM.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, as this has been going for about two weeks in in Canada and Ottawa's, uh, already declared a state of emergency like a week ago. There's a convoy, uh, tried to stir up some shit in Toronto last weekend and it didn't really work out for them. And they're, they were supposedly going to try again this Saturday and they may very well do that. But now the police have been given the powers to like arrest and find these people. Uh, but the, the, the thing that changed everything was when finally capital was threatened.
1: Yes. Well, I and isn't isn't that the case? That, I mean, what wasn't that the case with Allende? um mm-hmm. it, You know, not that the U.S. had any pleasant feelings towards leftists in uh, what it regards as its sort of Monroe Doctrine sphere of influence, and and not that the U.S. hadn't um, a- already uh, done uh, plenty of meddling in in South America. But you know, Ayende was not. Though he was friendly with Cuba, he was not a Castro. Um, Allende was really more of a social democrat. But what ultimately t- turned the U.S. against him was his his decision to nationalize extractive national resources and basically say, you know, Ch- Chile has has all of these, you know, has gas and minerals, and we're gonna keep them for ourselves, <laughs> basically make some money off of them for social programs. And that was his downfall. That, that was unacceptable to um, global capital based in the U.S. Um, and, and yes, uh, irony of ironies, I think the trucker, the trucker protests in Canada, they probably sh- in a way shot themselves in the foot because I think that there were a lot of right wing and, and reactionary elements here in the U.S. who have already been supporting them. Because of their their sort of anti-mandate, anti-vax <laughs> kind of stance, but um, but those those same individuals, at least the ones who are really in power, um, are are not going to stand for in- interruptions to U.S. trade and manufacturing. I mean, something like a quarter of the trade between the U.S. and Canada goes across the ambassador bridge (laughs) it's an astonishing figure it's like hundreds of billions of dollars every week travels across that bridge most of it in uh auto manufacturing trade um and that's just not going to be acceptable to uh to the U.S. even to right-wingers in the U.S. who are I think otherwise inclined to support people given uh Trudeau and the lives up in Canada, a hard time.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, and also it has to be said that 90% of all the truckers that are working are all vaccinated. That's a requirement yeah. to go back and forth between the US. It's the same condition for our truckers to get into America.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, uh, it's it's pretty clear that there is an element, there. there is an astroturf uh, element of all of this. I mean, we know that money... Uh, even aside from the ill-fated GoFundMe from the United States that was supposed to fund all, all, all of all of these uh, all of these protesters. We, we know that that money has been traveling back and forth and that um, Americans have been uh, organizationally involved, many of whom are are figures on the um, on the American right, the American political right. Right. Um, it's amusing because, as we were saying, and 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 as is mentioned um, in in Missing, the, the other film that we're talking about, um, the use, the strategic use of trucking protests is a is a classic, um, a classic right wing uh, tactic to stir up discontent, uh, and uh, particularly stir up discontent with governments, and 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 in the seventies, um, in the same as today, during a time of. In inflation, supply chain disruptions, um, and general sort of economic unease. And and so I think you kind of saw some of the same dynamics playing out. But um, it, even with a minority government, I, I think that um, the idea that you're going to bring down the Canadian, the current Canadian government by um, <laughs> stopping uh, Cars from driving through central Ottawa seems to me to be a somewhat naive um, uh, pretense. One
0: one funny irony is that the anti-lockdown, anti-mandates people have accidentally triggered a state of emergency. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that's, uh, that, that's that's exactly right. Well, I mean, it is it is. Uh, I think you you. You've probably seen me uh, l- laughing about it quite a bit on, on good old Twitter.com. And I think this is probably truer in the United States than it is in, in Canada at this point. Um, though, how much truer, I can't say. But uh, there is this uh, extraordinary contingent of people, you know, bo- both, frankly, both kind of mainstream liberals and, and lots of people on the right who have concocted this fantasy world in which we're all living under some kind of like draconian lockdowns, which we've been living for the last two years in a state of emergency, which is not the case. I mean, even at the outset of the pandemic, you could say we maybe had a sort of a period of, you couldn't even call it a lockdown, just a soft slowdown of some businesses. But um, and 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 you know some remote schooling and, and and things of that sort. And now you know everything's open. Businesses are open. You can go anywhere you want. You can do anything you want. Um, I, I've I've traveled throughout the United States over the past year, and other than wearing a mask on an airplane, uh, it, it's it's hardly different from what was happening in 2018, let's say. So it's like this this extraordinary imago concocted in the minds of people who are like desperate to feel oppressed, even though they themselves are all the most comfortable and least oppressed people in the world.
0: Yeah. These people are intentionally or otherwise, they're either too stupid to know this or they are very deliberately conflating these two concepts between rights and privileges. These people have had their privileges taken away from them.
1: Yes. And people who are unwilling to accept that uh, that a rights based society has to be one in which people actually have responsibilities, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a society that's the, uh, that is built around these kind of constitutional restraints on the ability of government to act, which and, and the United States is is maybe. Uh, of all the countries in the world maybe the most radical example of that you know the one the yep. one in which we have this articulated bill of rights which basically constrains the government's ability to to do things at least within the domestic sphere of the united states and can argue about how much they violate that or not but that's kind of an, an essential principle of american government well what that means is that is that individual responsibility <laughs> a, a, a much beloved phrase of the right is incredibly important is incredibly important because people have to be have to be responsible and restrained and sort of govern their own uh, civil passions in order for society to function. But if if everyone is just a, a an aggrieved baby who's you know mad because somebody else has a lollipop, or or worse yet, you know angry because they're told they need to share or they need to they they or they ought to not even they need to not even they have to, but simply that they ought to take certain precautions to be mindful of others and protect the safety of other people. You know, if they're not willing to do that, then then <laughs> society does not function very well. It, it, it becomes anarchic in the bad way, not in the good way.
0: And it's all about uh, consumer habits being disrupted. Like now they have these people are upset because now they're being forced to wear a mask to go in to buy a lollipop.
1: Yeah, that's right. God, (laughs) God, God forbid. Um, And and it's interesting uh, uh, to, to uh, tie us back to, to uh, our, our genius filmmaker, uh, Costa Gavras And and particularly, I think to some of the, um, some of the commentary that you see in, um, in missing one of the really interesting notes I thought was Jack Lemmon's character, the father of the kid of the kidnapped journalist, his first encounters with the house that his son and 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 his daughter in law, played by Sissy Spacek, were living in, which we've already encountered, we've seen it, we've seen it um, in happier days before the kidnapping, and. And it's a, it, you know, it's a lovely home. It's like a lived in home. It's full of, it's full of French doors and art on the walls by the neighborhood children. And it's clear that friends and neighbors come and go. It's, it's a lovely home. But his first reaction to it is to, to act as if they're living in some type of squalor. He can't believe that they're living in this neighborhood amongst the native peoples, um, not in some American compound, not in some lap of luxury, and, and he, his, his sort of relativistic perception of that as being deprivation um, is a is real commentary on the sort of American view of the world where he, he's, he's blind to the fact that they have this incredibly rich life together there or had, you know, until, until the American government and, and their allies um, in, the, in the junta um, came in and wrecked everything, um, and, and uh, it's something that he softens in that as the as the movie goes on. Um, but it's something that I don't think he ever quite. He, he, at least within the film, he never quite moves past it. He's always he, he's always unable to understand why they were even there in the first place. Why, why would you want to live in this relative deprivation when you could have when you could be in New York? Mm -hmm. living with us in an apartment
0: Mm -hmm. well let's get into this Uh, let's talk first about State of Siege I want to tell you one little fun fact I forgot to mention in the first episode I did about Costa Gavras, that his directing name is the result of a typo on his first (laughs) screen credit uh, (laughs) they spelled his name Costa Gavras in the titles of his first film credit his actual name is Constantine Gavras. (laughs)
1: <laughs> ah, uh, right. I, and that makes sense to me because I was actually thinking to myself, it's it was even unusual uh, that that they spelled his name with a C rather than with a K. Like you don't, the French don't use K very much, except when it's a foreign word or a foreign name. And particularly, like with a Greek guy, you would expect that if, if his name was Costa, they would spell it with a with a K. But I, I guess they Francified it.
0: I think it's cool though that he wound up sticking with it as a nom de guerre, you know, like yeah, well, that's my name now in movies. <laughs> so, so first, uh, you know, this was in the aftermath of making Z, uh, and everybody thought that he was a big lefty filmmaker. Then he made The Confession, which was an anti-Soviet, anti-communist movie that actually alienated his uh, brethren on the left.
1: Yeah, yeah, they were really mad about it, and 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 you, I mean. I was, I mentioned to you um, when we were chatting beforehand, I I actually just rewatched it last night. I mean, it is a, it is an an absolutely grinding film. It it is, it, uh, you feel like you're being brutally interrogated by (laughs) Stalinist flunkies yourself. Um, and and it's very hard to get through And It's really unremitting and you can see it, it does not, it does not take a nuanced, uh, View of the <laughs> of the Czechoslovak government at the time, or of Soviet uh, the sort of Soviet Union under Stalinism. Now, I- interestingly, I-, I think that maybe attitudes have softened a little bit since then because the 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 show trials that it's roughly based on and were deeply anti-Semitic um, and. The, the main character played by Yvonne Tom in that movie, uh, as he plays uh, a main character in *State of Siege*, sort of on the opposite side of the of the aisle, um, uh, was was himself of, of Jewish descent um, and was persecuted in the kind of like Soviet sphere Dreyfus affair, R- really horrible stuff. And I think that in the post, in the as as more of the documents from the Stalin era became available. Um, towards the latter years of the Soviet Union, people kind of realized how horrific all this stuff was. And, and, but at the time, you know, uh, when he made the film, um, I think mean, most of the French intellectuals and so forth had sworn off of Stalinism already, but there was still a real soft spot for the Soviet Union as a, a, as a, a potential sort of alternate model of society. And I think people were really pissed off that he, <laughs> that he did that. But then he made State of Siege, Um, which is uh, a deeply, deeply anti-imperialist film and a very, very thoughtful and searing critique of of American imperial policy um, in particular.
0: The film is based on an actual incident uh, in Uruguay where a U.S. embassy official named Dan Mitrione was kidnapped and killed. And the news at the time was very mysterious about this man. Like He was described as a U.S. citizen. And Costa Garver said that when he was reading about the, st- the uh, story about this guy's life in, Paris, in Le Monde, that uh, in the first edition of the paper, Mitrioni was described as an official. In the second edition, he was, he was a policeman. And by the third edition, he had become a diplomat. And the New York Times story about his death made no mention of what this man was doing down in Uruguay. They just said that he was a kidnapped victim and that he, quote, headed the public safety division of the United States aid mission there, and that he was the leading U.S. expert on Tupamaro activity, who were the leftist guerrillas in Uruguay, and that his work was considered to have contributed materially to the government's anti-guerrilla campaign.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta... I I mean, you... As a... (laughs) As a writer, I I am, I have to say, perversely inspired by the capacity, by by that sort of the the circumlocutions that the U.S. government is capable of when it comes to kind of concocting these sort of like empty signifiers of who who people are and, and what they do. I mean, he was... He was in the public safety program of the International Cooperation Administration. What what an absolutely diabolically ingenious thing to call uh, basically as a a, um, subversive intelligence service.
0: This man worked for the United States Agency for International Development in their Office of Public Safety <laughs> which is a US government program within USAID that provided training assistance and equipment to the security forces of US allies.
1: Right. And and then and you read and and they it, his the the character that's based on him played by Yves Montand in the in the in the film State of Siege. Um this is discussed there as well. It's 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 Comical to to sort of see the how he basically just always appears in a South American country right before the right wing junta takes over, and yes. then he moves on to the next one because they you know and in, and in the case of the of the the real Matrione he you know he went to um, he was originally in Brazil he was in Belo Horizonte and then he was in rio de janeiro and and he was in brazil right up until the time of the coup (laughs) military took took over and then he went back to the states and he trained police officers for 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 other south american countries and then he shows up uh then he shows up in uruguay um right around the time that they uh too are uh having a uh change of government, shall we say. And so so it's, it's sort of like, a, it's like a, a satanic version of Zelig, just a, always there, there at, at exactly the right time.
0: You know, one thing that I was thinking about the pairing of State of Siege and Missing is that they're both movies about kidnapping victims who were killed. One of them acts like an innocent. The other one was a little too naive for his own good. But um, in State of Siege, it starts off very interestingly. We see uh, uh, the landscape of Uruguay, by the way, never named in the movie. We, you no. can put it together that it's Uruguay. You see the flag. You, know, you, you hear uh, references to uh, places in the country, but they never use the word Uruguay. They never name any uh, country in the whole movie. But you can see Montevideo is written on the license plate of the car that we see at the beginning of the film. The movie begins with a very, very effective opening where we see uh, the entire landscape of this uh, neighborhood, uh, which the movie, by the way, was filmed in Chile. Uh, we see this landscape of military personnel and police rounding everyone up and roadside uh, blockades and people being pulled out of buses and uh, you know, interrogated and hauled away. And the camera pans across. The city, and we see on the roofs of all these buildings, uh, police walking around with machine guns. It and everybody, it almost feels like a, a swarm of ants was how and it looked to me.
1: Yeah, that's another um, uh, real tour de force of the scene. Actually, it's remarkable that that scene happens, and then the, the and the kidnapping scene, both in the same movie, but both uh, the the preparation and choreography. It may be even more impressive for that for that kind of sweeping opening, because there are so many different things happening at once. And the camera is in motion in so many interesting ways. And you're just, you know, like the camera will be moving down a row of cars as the police are kind of pulling individuals one after another out of a car. And every individual is reacting a little bit differently. People are being separated. Then you're seeing these kind of sweeping, I don't know if they were, I don't know if they were done with a boomer or some other, but with a copter, but these kind of aerial shots where, yeah, you're seeing the people on the roofs, you're seeing the security forces moving into, it's not really a favela, but kind of like a a sort of more down on its luck neighborhood. And you see these kinds of yeah swarms of individuals moving through. And there's just so much motion and so much choreography. I remember uh, as I was rewatching it, just thinking to myself, how, how did they prepare these shots? There are so many people doing so many things, but it gives you uh, such an, a visceral and immediate sense of what it was to be there in that country, kind of on the verge at that moment. And, and that, that simultaneously like sweeping Overview, but like the claustrophobic feeling of just being like caught in traffic, (laughs) Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. as as the police and the security forces are just randomly, you know, pulling people out of cars, uh, sending cars off to the side of the road, pulling them into parking lots, emptying buses—all of that happening all at once—really incredible filmmaking. I think.
0: Just going back to the 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 fact that Costa Gavras wanted to make this movie in Chile he had good relationships with Salvador Allende. And he said at the time, the reason why he wanted to make this movie in Chile, even though it's uh, a French language film, was that Chile at the time was the most free and anti-censorship and pro-democratic country in South America. And Allende was uh, wanted Chile, in fact, to be a sort of powerhouse of film production, and basically, all these resources that were very affordable for this uh, European co-production to shoot there—you uh, can see it all on the screen. Like it's—it's it's really something. It almost feels like a real uh, military dictatorship is taking place, which is one of the ironies of this entire yeah. movie. Is that he made this movie just before an actual military coup in Chile? Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, it, it's extraordinary to think about. I mean, just before uh, yeah. you have to—you have to knowing the timeline of, of the, uh, of the Chilean coup, I, I mean, the, in effect, it must've already been in motion when, when this film was made, it, it simply hadn't, it simply hadn't sprung out from the underground, but uh, all of the, all of the American forces and, and their, and their collaborators within, within the Chilean, Sort of military and security establishment must have already been deep, deep into their plotting by the time this, this film was being made, um, which is sort of terrifying to think about in a way.
0: how this movie begins is sort of an in medias res beginning where we see a big sweeping manhunt. They seem to be going door to door. They seem to be going uh, and rounding up and looking around at every single building and every single vehicle. And then they finally find this one car that's parked on a road. And one of the cops goes up to it and sees the corpse of the man named Philip Michael Santore, who is the uh, the, the surrogate for the real Dan Mitrione, who's now you know, been murdered, and now we go to um, his funeral, and this uh, a national day of mourning being declared in this unnamed country. Yeah. At the funeral, we hear the priest, and he says, "Philip Michael Santore knew poverty, and he dedicated his life to fighting it, and he was able to save many young people, turning them into decent citizens." But a reporter points out that the though the Council of Ministers, the heads of the armed forces, and the diplomatic community of the country are in attendance, the section of seating that's been assigned to the priests and the university bodies are empty. Yeah. Uh, and then we see uh, Santori's wife um, at the funeral, and then we jump to this very, very strange flashback where she's remembering this uh, meeting that she had with all the wives of American personnel in Uruguay when they first arrived in the country, getting a little slideshow about avoiding a hookworm infection.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And, and being told and, and, and being sort of given a kind of like, uh, you, you might just be a, a very 70s uh, you might, you're you all just wives, but you are still representatives of America and of American morals. And you need to you know, comport yourself appropriately and dress nicely and l- look the part. And you're, you're, you, your job is just as important as your husband's jobs. Um,
0: yeah. But it reminded me so much of the opening of Z, how all the military people are talking about this horrible plan that they're uh, doing, but they're getting a lecture first about fighting germs.
1: That's right. Uh, fu- uh, that's right. Uh, mildew. <laughs> I, ironically, <laughs> Mildew, yeah, specifically about protecting wine grapes. Uh, it was a, a really uh, a very, very entertaining. I remember when I first saw it because I, 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 I must have – I guess I was probably in, in college when I first saw Z. And I remember, like, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Um, and I was thinking to myself, like, this is well, – I, I don't know. I guess it's a French movie. Of course, they're talking about grapes, only to slowly realize that it had nothing to do with France at all. You know. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I I think that the um, you you kind of alluded to it um, in, in discussing the, the funeral, but um, the the uh, use of the local press in state of siege is really interesting too. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're they're sort of especially the the one, the kind of main um, sort of uh, reporter interlocutor who's like clearly the sort of like a local journalist who's who's very much portrayed as being, he's like, he's totally non-ideological the way that he's portrayed. Like he's, he's, he's portrayed as this kind of like, you know, the sort of old newspaper man. Like he's been there before, he's seen it all, he just doesn't believe any of the bullshit. And he keeps asking these really pointed questions not you you never get the sense really that it's because he himself is necessarily like on the left you know You, you don't really get a clear read of that but he definitely like he doesn't believe anything that the americans are telling him he doesn't believe anything that the anything about the official government line he just kind of keeps asking these kind of slyly subversive questions throughout the movie but that kind of serve as a as a narrative guidepost to us as the viewer as we're watching the thing to kind of um understand like both what we're being told and what we're not being told you know what's being elided from the official explanations
0: yeah i mean because he's curious because he's a journalist and all of a sudden there's a national day of mourning in the country for a man who was just a public you know he was a, a contract worker he was not an important man as far as anybody in uruguay understood uh, he he was a mystery man, and so he asks the question that is actually the question that the movie's asking, which is who is Philip Michael Santore? Yeah, and and just like Z, Z is a chronological mystery that gets unfolded, but State of Siege gives you the the murder and the aftermath at the beginning, and then goes back to try and figure out who this guy is and and uh, i read somewhere that somebody said that these two movies z and state of siege are not so much who done it as how it was done
1: yeah oh yeah that's why i like i said especially state of siege even even more so than than missing i uh, like i i really do think it has a lot in common with your kind of like classic heist film mm-hmm. um it's, it's got a lot of the same kind of narrative beats and it does the same thing. It's like, yeah, we know who, we know who did it. It doesn't like, like it doesn't, the people who pulled off the heist, it doesn't matter who they are what's interesting is like what they're, you know, they've each got their specialty and how it all comes together in this plan to, to get this person. And of course, in this case, in the case of state of siege, they ultimately kind of fail. They, they kidnap him. They, successfully in a lot of ways interrogate him they effectively get him to admit who he is and what he's doing there they've got the evidence and they confront him with it in the end he ironically he he, even centauri is disposable because what they they're, they're trying to get like a prisoner exchange um and in the end they just it it's just not worth it, apparently, you know, to the Americans, to the government. And they, they sort of just, they think, they think maybe they're going to get him back, that they send the police to get him back, but it just doesn't, it's not worth it. They're not willing to trade anything for him.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he, this leads me to the other fascinating thing about this movie is that Costa Gravers wrote this film with Franco Salinas, who is the screenwriter who wrote The Battle of Algiers. Hmm. Salinas wanted to work with Costagavras, even though they didn't agree politically. Uh, Salinas had a beef with the confessions anti-Soviet stuff, but he respected Costagavras for you know Z. But what he really wanted to explore and what their common ground was was exploring the issue of U.S. imperialism in Latin America, and uh-huh. Gavras I mean, here's what a badass Costa Gravers is. When they were developing State of Siege, he and Salinas actually met with the Tupamanos when they were developing the film. This was the, uh, t- you know, the terrorist unit, the leftist guerrilla movement, to try and understand, as Battle of Algiers does, how do these guys function? Like, how you know, how do you actually carry out successful urban guerrilla warfare?
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and, and they... Uh, but I, they succeed to the extent that, like, as as you're watching it, you think to yourself, um, not that during that kidnapping scene, then subsequently when they're in that that sort of annex where they're conducting the interrogation itself, you know, and where they've covered the walls in newspaper and where they kind of show you their the their sort of security precautions in the way they go in and the way they go out. I mean you think to yourself this could all be completely fabricated but boy it sure look feels real like it all felt like uh like it was torn from from true life it's got this this kind of like almost a documentary quality to it of of appearing to show you the sort of real precautions the real almost like trade craft that the people that these that that these gorillas used um, in, a, in this heavily surveilled society. I mean, obviously it wasn't surveilled to the extent that, you know, ours is today maybe because they didn't have the same technology, but, you know, where they're, they're everything, every movement that they make is potentially being watched by someone and how they, they use, um, they use citizens and misdirection and, and, temporary part, kidnapping cab drivers for half the day and all these things that they do to kind of throw um throw the authorities off of their scent in order for them to be able to to, to kidnap these officials and conduct these interrogations
0: one of the one of the tupamanos's uh, strategies was when they kidnapped people they kidnapped people who were problematic and unpopular like by kidnapping the santori character uh, they put the United States government in the position of having to tell people who he was. And since they don't, uh, the Tupamanos, through their communiques throughout the movie, start to reveal who this guy is and what he does. Yeah. Um, the other, uh, This is a great quote from Costa Gavras as to why he wanted to make a movie about the Tupamanos. He really wanted to make a movie about U.S. imperialism, but he wanted to do it through the study of an actual leftist guerrilla group. He said... What fascinated me about the Tupamanos was their political maturity, their way of analyzing a situation in terms of the country's real conditions, the perfection of their technique, their effectiveness on both the military and political levels, and finally, their complete lack of revolutionary
1: hot air. Well, it was interesting that those communiques don't have any, you know, like high-flown, you know, manifesto language in them. They are very um, direct and almost like newsreader-like. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, it, 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 just sort of thinking about the structure of the of the movie and, and about the screenplay. I, I was thinking about it. Um, last night, as I was thinking about this movie, and and you know the <laughs> structurally the other uh, movie and work of fiction that it reminds me of a lot is is Graham Greene's The Quiet American, mm-hmm. um, which also, by the way, also opens kind of with the guy fi- basically finding um, uh, pile the the Ameri- the Quiet American dead, and then sort of flashing back and sh- showing how we got there, and he too was like one of those. The mysterious advisor characters mm-hmm. um, who, who sort of shows up in a country I, I I wonder to myself I mean that book was written in the presciently in the 50s um, and I, I do wonder if Costa Goras and his collaborators um, knew about it I have to imagine so because the book was set during you know the sort of French it was about the French war in Indochina you know not and and so you, you have to imagine that Salinas at least was aware of it mm-hmm
0: well, um the Tupamanos, by the way, when they were uh, approached by Costa Gavras and Salinas uh to work together on this film and to sort of, you know, give them some insight into their operations, they were uh a little distrustful, but they also realized that these guys made two bangers about <laughs> you know uh <laughs> counterterrorism and uh and uh anti-imperialist uh, uh sentiment with the Battle of Algiers and with Z. So they they were a little annoyed though when they discovered that they weren't making a propaganda movie about the tupamanos they were making a movie that really points the finger at the us's involvement in latin and south america
1: yeah yes well uh, i i mean you know it, uh that's the uh, uh the irony of the fact that sometimes even sometimes the bad guys are still the protagonists in the historical sense and you mm-hmm. know and it's the the you you just I, I don't say this to to sort of denigrate revolutionary movements in south america but it's just really hard to to write about south america uh, to create a film about this era in politics in in south and latin america without without writing about without making the americans the kind of cent, central figures in a lot of ways because the americans were central figures um uh, something that because we never had an official colonial empire in the same way that the European powers did, we've not really incorporated into our own, I think, uh, historical consciousness of, about ourselves as Americans. And so, I mean, you know, not to, not to harp on the point and, and not that I think that the, like, <laughs> that the French have even fully come to terms, like, for example, with their own colonial past, but, you know, the relationship of like, a. uh, even a we're just regular old normie in France to like, you know, the French colonization of Algiers and the war in Algeria, or the French colonization of Vietnam and the French wars conflict in Indochina is very different, I think, from the American conception of what we what we've done in our own kind of corner, what we think of as our own corner of the world, where, yeah, it's all these, you know, international cooperation agencies, but nobody ever thinks about us as being a kind of like colonial authority within, within these countries that, that uh, occupied them without conquering them in a lot of ways. The reason
0: why the U.S. State Department was so upset about State of Siege is that um, it basically revealed to a, a movie-going public <laughs> what the U.S. Agency for International Development does Yeah. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's something that is, uh, you know, it's a mystery. It's like, oh, I know that the US uh, has an aid program in in Latin and South America, and they have the Office of Public Safety. But nobody knows what the Office of Public Safety does. They were disbanded a couple of years after this movie was released. They were operating in 52 countries, uh, you know, officially to fight communism and to provide counterinsurgency support. What is really spooky about it is that they would oversee and train local police forces and I found out that in the 60s the LAPD played a major role in training local police forces in Venezuela and the Dominican Republic because they would send officers who spoke Spanish down on tours of duty and uh, you know they provided arms equipment and training to the to assist the government and the most important thing that they did was they introduced military torture techniques The real Mitrioni, his credo apparently was, quote, the precise pain in the precise place in the precise amount for the desired effect. Yeah. So his job was to go from country to country and show the military how to do a
1: coup. Yes. And and to show them and and to introduce, um, uh, like Fordist scientific torture, um, as a as a legitimate tool of statecraft not that nobody else in the world ever tortured anybody and that the americans invented it but in the sort of the classic that sort of like mid-century rationalist american fashion turning turning this kind of non-scientific like folk practice of torture which has existed around the world for for you know since the dawn of time into this very precise scientific measurable, repeatable, accurate, almost industrialized, um, uh, practice, you know, so, so that they could, um, so that it could be applied in this kind of rationalistic scientific way to achieve these, you know, very, what they imagined to be very precise political ends. Um, and also to, uh, to, uh, Utilize it as a as a terror mechanism, so something that you know Americans had long experience with, and uh, uh, and that Americans were then further inspired by <laughs> by our uh, friends in Germany after the Second World War <laughs> to to, uh, to adopt. Um, uh, uh, Mitrioni supposedly actually invented like uh, a specific torture device himself. At least that's the accusation. Um, from in, in Uruguay that he invented a, basically a type of compression vest that would, that used pressure to compress a person's chest cavity to cause both pain, um, and also to make it difficult for them to breathe. And that, that he, he literally invented and popularized this device in South America.
0: Mm-hmm. I think what the, 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 sick thing is that I think, uh, what Mitrioni and his, uh, ilk, uh, successfully, uh, did when in, in terms of an innovation in torture is to uh, actually uh, offer training courses in torture. Like that was the big innovation in the '60s. The uh, the what they call the School of the Americas as well, yeah. which is uh, I think that's a subsidiary of the USAID. But the idea that you could go to Washington and learn how to uh, successfully <laughs> <laughs> undo the results of an election that you didn't like the results of. Um, this, one of the really horrible things that I read about, uh, that Mitrioni would do the director of the Uruguayan police alleged that he had kidnapped homeless people for Mitrioni to use for teaching purposes. And the, so the people that they would, uh, abduct and, and do, uh, demonstrations on in these classes, they were basically kept alive for multiple sessions. And when they were finished with them, they would mutilate their bodies and leave them in the streets to induce fear. Um, like the movie shows what that most disturbing sequence in the movie is, uh, is a scene that I think is set in Brazil where um, there's like a, a room full of military people watching a man getting electrocuted, a naked man.
1: Yeah. Um, I that's would,
0: a, that's a tough sit that scene.
1: <laughs> yes. it uh, Very, very much is. Um, I would, uh, so the, the, um, The School of the Americas um, was renamed the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation, WITSEC. Um, And I would uh, strongly advise listeners to look up its absolutely terrifying seal, um, which is... A a emblazoned with an image of the of the Americas, North and South America, and on one side is a sword, a crossed sword and torch, and on the other is um, a Christian cross of the sort that was on the sails of the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. And beneath it all is their um, Spanish language slogan, which is "Libertad, Paz, y Fraternidad." It it is like truly. like, uh, p- peace through strength, yeah. uh, peace is our profession, uh, ho- horrifying shit.
0: Uh, but I mean, so this is how in the dark America was about men like Mitrioni. So when Mitrioni was kidnapped and, and executed by the Tupamanos, the news got back to the States and the news was of course, very anodyne about how this guy was just a guy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, who was kidnapped and, uh, you know, he was the, uh, he, uh, <laughs> what was he a diplomat? <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, without any information, it sounds like a terrible story about, oh, this poor American was murdered by these crazy leftists. So Frank Sinatra read an article about the killing of Mitrioni. And he was touched by the fact that Mitrioni had left behind a widow, Henrietta, and was they were the parents of 10 children. So Frank Sinatra arranged for Jerry Lewis and himself to perform a benefit concert for the family in his hometown of Richmond, Indiana. He probably hadn't been back to Indiana in like 15 years, but uh, Sinatra flew his orchestra in from New York city in August of 1970. He invited the entire Richmond, Indiana fire and police departments to attend the concert. They raised over $75,000 for a trust fund for the 10 children. I, I, presume that Frank Sinatra and Jerry Lewis didn't know that this guy was the head of a torture operation in South America I could be wrong
1: <laughs> or they or they did and they approved I mean yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: uh, yeah anyway so I mean the thing is this movie exposed this to people and Eve Montand is playing the guy and for a a, a long section of the movie we don't know what to make of Yves Montan. We have no idea
1: of who yeah, he they, is. <clears throat> yeah, they, they show him, like, um, they, they show some kind of, the, the, some pre-kidnapping scenes that are all pretty anodyne and that I think are, are sort of designed as, as, as a bit of misdirection. Um, uh, they, they sort of present the image of him that America would have wanted to present to the world. They show They show him and his wife seeing their, children the children are leaving to like go to the embassy school so they you see them like sh- showing their children off um this is also by the way it's a clever way to keep um to keep Montan from having to say any lines in english because in the movie m- most of the americans speak english and then french is basically the stand in for spanish mm-hmm. um and so uh so Montan speaks when he's speaking to the other Uruguayans, even though they're never technically called uruguayans he speaks french which is the, their language that's that's spanish um but the american characters um and and the uruguayan characters when they're like the reporters when they're talking to the american characters often lapse into english or at least say a few phrases in english but i think they didn't it would have been weird to have monton um say speak english with a french accent um, as an American character. So they just, they never show him interacting with other Americans with him saying any lines.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Montand, by the way, was born in Italy. Like he's yes. technically not French. I mean, he, yeah. he, he moved to France as a very young child, but he was Italian. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
1: um,
0: and so was yeah, Mitrioni, by the way. So was Mitrioni so was born he, in Italy too. And, yeah. and Montand uh, sort of related to the character. Montan really wanted to be in this film. Uh, he, I mean, he was a, a very, very faithful collaborator with uh, Costa Gavras.
1: Yeah, um, his 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 I, I really like him in this movie. You, you had mentioned in your in your um, episode on on Z, um, you know, where he plays the kind of the, the leftist candidate in Greece um, who who everyone kind of uh, hopes represents some kind of different direction uh, in that country during its own um, period of military dictatorship, but he's only in that movie, even though he's kind of like the title character, he's only in that movie for a very brief period of time. He, he's kind of like a presence that hovers over it. Um, but he really commands a lot of screen time during the interrogation scenes, um, in state of siege. And, um, and boy, is he good because it would be, it would have been easy to portray this character as, as just as kind of like a, you know, a, a villainous American, um, or alternately, it would have been easy to portray him as being kind of just, uh, you know, a sort of savage military guy, you know, a torturer um, who who doesn't have a lot of depth. But he's really smart. I mean, he he he, he really um, kind of plays a bit of uh, sort of uh, chess with his interrogators. And he he kind of is willing to admit certain things, um, you know, kind of kind of willing to say to them to indicate maybe that he's more than what he seems to be, but while also withholding from them Mm -hmm. the the true depths of who he really is. And I just think it's a, it's a really impressive acting performance because he's, you know, he's a monster, he's one, you know, it's sort of, um, he's a monstrous guy, but he's also kind of, he's a functionary. Um, he's an evil guy, but he's not without a kind of, um, insightful intelligence that's probably what made him a successful torturer and interrogator that he's 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 got that kind of empathetic insight into his counterpart in the interrogation even when he himself is the person being interrogated um and, and I thought I thought those scenes were just were, just they're really compelling um uh, watching him and and then when he finally does kind of break a little and and kind of basically expresses his ideology that you know he's a servant basically says like i'm a servant of order against the forces of chaos mm-hmm. um even that is really feels honestly dragged out of him and he almost feels it almost seems like he's surprised to find himself saying it mm-hmm. um great performance i think
0: yes um, i those scenes are, are really key to the film uh the way that uh, centauri is basically yeah i mean like all villains in in movies the best villains are the ones that think they're the heroes. Yeah, Like he thinks yeah. that he, that he's on the side of righteousness. He's not at all apologetic about uh, the, the torturing these people because he considers them to be less than human. He considers his uh, crusade to be a just crusade. Uh, he uh, seems a little annoyed that he's been uh, caught for this, but he's not uh, repentant for the things that he's done. They never make him apologize for it. He doubles down on, on that stuff when they start calling him on the actual crimes against uh, humanity that mm-hmm. this man has committed. And th- that's the other great thing about this Costa Gavras uh, uh, project oh, throughout all his films is that he's on the side of the oppressed. Uh, yes. He he basically, uh, this is a movie that basically prosecutes the United States for the terrible things they've done in South America. Yeah,
1: it, it, you get there, there are some great moments, too, where he's such an avatar for the eternalistic attitude of America and the American empire toward the people uh, of South America. There, there's this moment during the interrogation where um, his interrogator uh, says to him, he, 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 he's, he's accusing him. And he says, well, "You you look at all the terrible things that you've done. And look, you accept, you accept the exploitation of the majority by the minority. This is like, he hurls it as an accusation at Montand's character. And Monton, the the subtitle doesn't quite capture how dismissive he is of it, even though in this moment, like he's 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 sort of started to break a little. But so so the the interrogator says, "You accept the you you, you accept the exploitation of the majority by the minority," and 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 Monton scoffs back. And in the subtitle, it just has some kind of scoff exploitation, like he can't believe the guy's saying it, but. It, what he actually says in French is exploitation. That's a big word. <laughs> he's so dismissive of the idea that these, these people who he considers his like inferiors could have any agency or ideology or beliefs of their own. It's like they're, they're these children um, who are barely, who can't even grasp the the world that they're living in. Um, and, uh, and, and he's, he, he, embodies that like attitude of of incredulity that Mm -hmm. other people have their own agency
0: Mm -hmm. well and and another key line in this film is in that sequence where he's uh in washington uh at this training seminar for uh you know given the uh latin american police some tips on how to maintain power he says governments may change but the police remain
1: yeah yes (laughs) (laughs) and And, and, and and he's not wrong. No. (laughs) Um, It's kind of like the great, the great lesson of uh, the last like century, at least, which is that security forces, I mean, heads might roll occasionally at the level just below the top, but um, yeah. uh, The the security forces can always be reincorporated into the new, (laughs) into the new regime somehow.
0: (laughs) Did you like that? Did you like that scene where the interrogator, uh, it's basically like Costa Gavras invented the this you meme. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this yeah. you. Yeah. Where, where, where he, shows shows him, him. <laughs> yeah, he shows him, Yeah. Cause he shows them he's, he's got, they've got photographic evidence because I mean, you know, and this is another, this is like, so such a classic American thing. Like, you know, these guys are, these guys are running this, like basically top secret torture school in the United States for South American security forces. <laughs> and yet they can't resist doing this completely like tacky, hammy you know like yearbook like with all the superlatives you know best in class best eyes you know and so they produce this 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 hysterical like rotary club uh, annual meeting document and it's got photographs of everybody in it and they get their hands on one of them but they they cut up the photo into different pieces so they like they show first they show them like some of the domestic security forces and he's like, do you know who this is? And he kind of, he doesn't really, and then they show him this sort of, Oh no, they, see, they're actually in the United States. And he's like, he kind of still isn't saying anything. And then they show him the final third of the photograph and he's in it, sitting at the desk and they say, you sure you don't remember this? <laughs>
0: <laughs> like these guys have the receipts. Um, I love the, the woman who edited this film, Francoise Bono. And I want to single out uh, her work. Uh, for keeping this movie going at a huge clip and, and her control over montages. It's her voice. That's reading the communiques, the, uh, those those sequences where we see Uh. the military's grip on the day to day life. Uh, She also is the woman who is speaking at the very end of Z, which she won the Oscar for editing for. Um, I just love uh, the use of her. And I love the fact that like her masterful editing uh, comes with her voice
1: too. Yeah. Well, hey. Uh, I, yeah, I guess that as a uh, my uh, yeah, a capstone comment. That's great to hear because like the the scene or, or series of scenes, the the kidnapping um, that takes place in the first third of the film, um, that's a tour de force of editing. Among other, I mean the, the the fact that it holds together as coherently as it does um, with so many different cuts and so many different things happening. Over such a long period of time, it was a really difficult technical feat. Um, And so she uh, must have been at the top of her game because um, it it really holds up well. The, The remarkable kind of visual storytelling.
0: This time that I watched the film, I noticed something else that I wanted to talk about with you is the repetition motif in this movie. Mm-hmm. We, all, we see over and over again the same things happening. It's uh, contained in that one sequence of the Tupamanos people commandeering all the cars for the kidnapping. We just see one scene after another of them taking over vehicles. Yeah. We continually see Yves Montand coming down off a plane in different countries with, this, mm-hmm. with the country that he's in now written on the side of the airport's uh, boarding stairs. There's that incredible sequence where Santori's fate is sealed where that guy's on the bus and one person after another gets on the bus and they have those identical conversations where they're basically deciding whether or not to
1: execute him. Yeah. What did you think of that? Oh man, that scene, the scene on the bus is, is another good one. Cause you, it, there, even it's clear from the beginning that the majority is going to vote to execute him, but there are a couple of dissenting voices and just the inclusion of those couple of voices, um, in what is that very repetitive? Because he even says that the, the, it's the same line of dialogue over and over. Like they, it's, yeah. it's extremely regimented, but there's there's still this like will they or won't they tension. Just because there are a couple of voices of dissent, and you know that the majority is going to rule because they've kind of indicated that to you already. But you almost think to yourself like, are they not going to really come to consensus? Is this is the is is his fate not really sealed? But his Fate is really sealed. Although then, of course, the other really chilling thing about this movie and and sort of indicative of how clear-eyed Gavras was about the American imperialism that he was targeting for critique is, of course, then you just see the next... Than Yvonne replacement coming down the steps of an airplane with his family.
0: <laughs> and we see these guys working on the airstrip, staring at him angrily. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, this is again with the, the, the point of all the repetition in this movie is that this is a never ending cycle that, that the America is just going to keep on doing this stuff. Military dictatorships are going to keep on torturing people. Revolutionaries are going to keep on fighting back. It's never going to end. Yeah. I want to single out as well, the fantastic scene where Yves Montand with uh, the terrorists have basically uh, announced that they're going to execute him, but they're privately asking him, is there anything that you can do? Like, can't you get the Americans to, uh, to, to let you go? And like, can't we just do this prisoner exchange we want to do? Yeah. And Montand says, no, it's, you know, they're going to do what I would do if I was in charge. Nothing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. He knows. I mean, he, he knows they're not going to they're not going to the that they're, they're not going to risk the enterprise, the American imperial enterprise for one man. He 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 knows he understands himself to be a, a tool, um, which, which is uh, which is terrifying because it's it, it's. It's terrifying to think of an individual willing, you know, sort of it's like the problem of evil in the modern in modern times, but you know, people willfully turning themselves into into tools of that sort of imperial state machinery, knowing as as powerful insiders in that machinery that they themselves are ultimately expendable and disposable to it. That that all that matters is the continuance of the enterprise.
0: One final thing to say about state of siege. It was not a big hit. And it was actually kept from being screened in the United States for about a year. Um, once the US State Department discovered what this movie was about, there was a scheduled premiere of it at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts.
1: Uh-huh. They canceled it. <laughs> they canceled it.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> they're like, the new movie from the guy who made Z, can't wait. And then they saw it and they were like, we cannot allow this movie to be seen in the United States. <laughs> so, <Sure. laughs> poor guy but i mean to me that's like mission accomplished when you make a movie about u.s uh, foreign policy that's so harsh that it can't be shown in the united states uh mission accomplished
1: yeah truly um and, well, and, they, and, and they
0: also accused the, uh, costa Gavras of glamorizing the the terrorists
1: yeah right of course well of course they did um you know uh which is which is funny. It, it's, it's that old, it's that old American obsession, um, with, uh, con- the idea that if you, if you like even admit that something exists, you confer legitimacy upon it. And that legitimacy som- somehow gives it, you know, this like power, um, you, you hear it in lots of American rhetoric, like, Oh no, we can't go and meet with the, uh, 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 Kim Jong-un and the North Korean regime, because that'll give them legitimacy. Like as if they're as if they not in charge of the country already. Like, we're, we're, you know, we can't meet with the regime in Tehran. That'll give them legitimacy. I I, I, I hate to break it to you. They've got it already. So
0: <laughs> as a segue to uh, going from state of siege to missing, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, the Office of Public Safety was dismantled in Chile by Salvador Allende in 1970, and that Augusto Pinochet reinstated the program shortly after the 1973 military coup. And the OPS helped Chile build what they called police operations control center facilities, which were highly advanced training rooms that were designed to aid in combating unrest. So, you know, Costa Gavras made state of siege uh, with the actual incredibly helpful and full participation of the Allende government. Ten years later, he finds himself in Mexico making a movie about Chile. Um, And by the way, some scenes in State of Siege were filmed in Viña del Mar, which is a coastal town in in Chile, which is a major uh, vector in the story of Missing. The coup was actually planned by Americans in Viña del Mar.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, what a so wild sort of. Um, I mean, you can't call it. You can't call it irony, really. I mean, Costigan knew what he was doing. Um, he it, it it was. But what a sort of um, extraordinary historical rhyme. After analyzing all the data, we still come to the conclusion that he must be in hiding. You know damn well he's not in hiding. Our whole neighborhood's why i picked up by a goon squad. I don't want to hear any of your anti-establishment paranoia. Why don't you just go home? I'll find my husband by myself.
0: Where is he? He's in the north. He should be out of the country sometime next week. There's another theory that your son was picked up by leftists posing as soldiers. There are even people who think it may have been his idea to make it look like they're arresting Americans.
1: They are arresting Americans.
0: <laughs> so Missing is based on an on a nonfiction book that was written by Thomas Hauser called The Execution of Charles Horman, which the State Department was already not thrilled about. And Universal and Polygram. Uh, entertainment uh, funded Costa Garvis's first American film, which was called Missing. The studio actually wanted either Gene Hackman or Paul Newman to play the lead. But uh, <laughs> Costa Gavras hilariously said that if Gene Hackman had been cast as the lead in Missing – then audiences wouldn't understand why uh, Edward Horman, the father of Charles Horman, didn't just beat the shit out of the embassy
1: officials. (laughs) Yeah. No, no. uh,
0: So so the, you know, the Jack Lemmon, mostly known for his comedy work, uh, was chosen as the lead. He won the best actor at Cannes for this performance. He is so good in this movie. Let's talk about Jack Lemmon for a minute first.
1: He's... He's great in this movie. Uh, he was he was nominated for the Academy Award for it too, but he didn't he didn't win. He Lemon did win a Best Actor. Yeah, he won Best but, Actor at Cannes. No, no, no. But I, well, he won an Oscar Best Actor for some something yeah.
0: else, but I forget yeah. what. What that was why Costa Garvis wanted him. He won for the movie Save the Tiger.
1: Oh yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, uh, boy, that's a film i don't think i've ever revisited (laughs) yeah
0: you know what i don't actually like it very much but (laughs) lemon is pretty good in it i suppose but i think in terms of his uh late career dramatic roles this is pretty much an untouchable and perfect
1: performance he he um he's really good in it because he is he gets the balance the the character the, the requirement for this character is that he he both has to have an air of entitlement because he is a successful you know he's a successful businessman he is he's got enough connections that he can get in to see his US senator and congressman he can get a meeting with the state department cuz cuz because you know his son is missing and not everybody not every american has that you know he he gets he he is clearly accustomed to a degree of deference from people around him it, that's part of the tension that you you sense between him and sissy spacex character his daughter-in-law not not just that she's this kind of like uh, uh kind of uh world traveling you know uh uh lefty kind of hippie type but but that she doesn't maybe give him the type of um, respect that he feels he deserves, and that he's just kind of naturally accustomed to. But at the same time, he's an unassuming guy. He's not like an international powerhouse. He's not. Um, he he's not a a, a commanding presence. He, he he's he's like a small businessman. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Lemon gets that that sort of. On the one hand, sort of expecting to be served, but on the other hand, being deferential to authority. Um, on the one hand, expecting to get his own way and being used to a certain amount of um, of respect and response from other people, but on the other hand, being himself, uh, sense seeing himself as in an inferior position to his own government, you know, he gets all of that really. Uh, Right, I think, and it makes the kind of transformation of his character as he becomes more and more desperate and more and more frustrated throughout the course of of the movie um, really compelling to watch, I think.
0: In the first minutes of the movie, when we see uh, Charles Horman played by John Shea uh, and Melanie Mayron who plays his friend, who we think at first is his girlfriend. Right in a car being driven uh, from you know, a coastal town back into Santiago right after the coup has taken place. And we hear the voice of Jack Lemon. He says, this film is based on a true story. The incidents and facts are documented. Some of the names have been changed to protect the innocent and also to protect the film. But I read that in an earlier cut of the movie, there's an additional line that Lemon says. He says, the guilty are already protected.
1: That was the yeah. one
0: thing that Universal had changed from the movie. Otherwise they left the movie alone.
1: Yeah. Huh. Well, that's a it's a pretty damning line, so I guess yeah. you can imagine why they why they pulled it out. Um, but I
0: but I remember when I watched this movie, like I knew that this was something special with the with the uh narrator saying that the names have been changed to protect the film. Yeah. Like that you're about to see a movie that you uh people would like you not to see.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Costa-Gavras does love a a, 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 a real like uh, hammer to nail opening uh, title for his yeah. for his films.
0: <laughs> yeah, he lo- he loves to uh to subvert the the role of a uh, disclaimer is to protect the movie from legal liability whereas Costa-Gavras is like I dare you.
1: Yeah. Uh, this movie is full of great performances. Uh, uh, you know Sissy Spacek is um is really terrific in it um as well um you it, it, it's interesting because you don't actually they don't really tell you very much about her but she you she embodies the character so well that you don't miss the absence of kind of any biographical details um from from the time before uh she met um uh charlie um and uh the kind of bit players are all um, really good as well. Like the couple of guys who play the congressman and the senator who is meeting, who Lemon is meeting with at the beginning, especially the guy who plays, I think it's the congressman who makes him walk down, walk with him while he talks. And Mm it's kind of like um, smarmily dismissive of him even as he's pretending to be, care about his constituent. Uh, Does a really good little character turn. All the guys in the American embassy are yeah. are just um, terrific. Uh, Richard Venture, who plays the kind of great silver-haired American ambassador, is yeah. uh, is really really great. Our our, our buddy uh, David Clennan, and this who is the slimy like consular yeah. officer, is really terrific. Um, yeah.
0: And Charles Kioffi,
1: yeah, is, uh, who Tower. was from
0: Clute as That's Ray right. Tower. Who's yeah. actually really sleazy in this film? There are a couple of scenes with him. I love how two faced that character is because he's trying to be so helpful in front of Ed Horman, but we've we are shown some scenes where he's actually like diabolical and sleazy.
1: Oh yeah, I, well, there's he's, he's trying to uh fuck Sissy SpaceX like a like a, a week after her, her husband disappeared. He's like drunkenly pawing at the door of the bathroom Is she yeah. <laughs> you know, I, he's yeah he's a really bad guy. Um
0: I noticed uh the this time when I watched it when Ed and um Beth played by Sissy Spacek come to the ambassador's office that, uh, Ray tower takes a couple of steps back when Uh Spacek comes in just in case she calls him on his bullshit. And that's a great scene because I love this, this character. She feels very real to me. And she also feels sort of has a sort of dirtbag left, uh, quality to her. Like (laughs) she like, she like fucking mocks these people to their face in the meeting. Like, like, The uh, Ray Tower character says, well, I'll be meeting with General Alvarez uh, next week. And she's like, oh, you haven't met with him yet? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, like (laughs) calling him on his shit. And Lemon is so uncomfortable with uh, her uh, fearless gunning down of these people who she knows are lying. The thing is, Jack Lemon doesn't. I mean, she figures they're lying. Jack Lemon is offended at the very idea that U.S. embassy officials and the ambassador would lie to an American citizen. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it. It feels very – the way that the, – the, the evolution and the way that he comes to ultimately have this, you know, really the kind of deep love and respect for her um, is, is very well-paced, I think, in the movie. Because you keep getting these – you get these moments where they sort of – very realistically throughout, you get these moments where they sort of could become a little more simpatico, and then they fall apart because either she's too brash or – uh, you know, somebody says the wrong thing, somebody does it, or, or he acts in a way that she doesn't improve of. So they keep kind of taking like a couple steps forward and then a couple steps back as they sort of slowly become allies and eventually uh, friends and, and almost familial by the end of the film. But you, you can sense, even in like later scenes, you know, there, there's that great scene where he goes to see the ambassador again and, and he's in the room with the whole kind of, ambassadorial staff all, all these american officials and he says look i'm not ideological I, I mean like i don't care what you guys are doing down here i know what you guys are doing down here i don't really give a shit you're the government you do what you need to do what i'm not going to get in the way with it i'm not going to go back to america and talk to the press i'm not going to tell anybody what you're doing down here i recognize that it's got to be a secret i just want my son back so you get me my son back. I'll sign any paper you want. I'll sign any agreement you want. I'll never say anything. I have no interest in what you are doing here. And they and and then they still kind of give him the runaround. And that really is the kind of like real kicker for him when he realizes that that not only do they, it's not just that they don't care, but that there's there's something even more sinister uh, going on, which is that they that maybe Sissy Spacek. Um, Beth or her, her character was right all along, and that they're they're not just ineffectual or they're not just kind of keeping something under the rug, but that they're directly implicated in what happened to his son.
0: What uh Charles Horman is doing down there is he's he's a lefty, but he's also kind of like uh, not all that. Uh, I mean, he's involved in the struggle and he's sympathetic to the struggle, but uh, he's down there because he wants to be a part of it. Like it's sort of like the naivete that gets sort of like drilled into Americans that we can be wonderful people all around the world. Uh, you know, that he's using that in the sort of the service of the good. Like he's a translator for a lefty newspaper and he's yeah. with these other idealistic American friends. I actually found that part of the film very poignant. His two friends, Frank and David yeah. played by uh, Joe Regalbuto and Keith Baika.
1: Yeah, they they. I
0: I finally learned how to pronounce his name for this
1: show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are two two really good turns in in kind of relatively brief on screen roles, but um, uh, that's great. Uh, They even say when when he goes and and this I think supports your your point when Jack Lemmon goes and meets with some of the other people, some of the 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 Chileans who work for the newspaper, they all kind of say, they say, oh, Ch- Charlie was a great, uh, was a great guy. Um, he was very ideologically naive, though. You know, they didn't view him as like a fellow revolutionary. He he was, as you say, kind of a, a nice guy, a lefty. He had a sort of, he had uh, maybe Aspirations to being a journalist, you know, he's willing to talk to anybody and ask a lot of questions, and he was always scribbling down notes. But he, he, it seemed like he wasn't quite getting it together. Like he, he wasn't, he wasn't like going to do a Seymour Hirsch turn down there, you know, and and write a grand expose. Um, And uh, he he was just kind of a yeah, nice guy, um, a little bit ideologically naive, probably on the political left, who was. almost indiscriminately rounded up with anybody else who even had a whiff of being a leftist Mm -hmm. and just, you know, again, kind of ground up in the machinery of American imperialism. Um, And then, and then they just, they covered it up because he was an American. I mean, you see that at the beginning of the movie, they say, Oh, all of the Americans who were rounded up have now been released. But then you gradually learn that that's not the case. And one of the guys who they said was released was actually killed. And they find out that he was killed. One of the, one of the two friends was, was executed.
0: That is a horrifying scene. I want to talk with you about the moment in this movie that I don't think anyone who sees this movie will ever forget. And that is the scene where Sissy Spacek goes to visit her friends, but she has to go home before the curfew starts. And she misses the bus. And, and she's out on the street now. No bus will stop for her gunfire is in the air and it's single gunfire. So, you know, that means executions. Yeah. And she rounds the corner and there are bodies in the street and she runs over to a, a, a sort of a dress shop. And the man tells her that he won't help her. And, yeah. and then she falls asleep in an alleyway. And then we have a dissolve to her being woken up by more gunfire. We see a white horse skittering down the street, being pursued by a Jeep full of soldiers firing in the air. Yeah. Like, unforgettable moment
1: it's it's a in a movie that's full of so much direct cruelty um you know where you where people are dying and you see people dying it 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 sounds i don't want to sound blasé to say this but just the casual cruelty of that moment you know these these young guys You know. Empowered by their participation in the coup and their their position in the security forces, just uh, chasing this terrified creature, you know, who lacks all capacity to understand what's happening down the street. Yeah, as you say, just firing in the air. Then it's not like they're they're not they're not shooting at it. They're just scaring it, taunting it for the for the fun of it, Um, for the for the libidinal thrill of causing this. Harmless creature, pain and terror. Seeing that happen, and then in the midst of all of the terror that's going on, and with Sissy Spacek literally cowering behind a plant in an alleyway, is is just so it gives you such a like uh, an incisive view into just the the cruelty and the inhumanity of uh, of this coup and of the people who are responsible for it, and how little they value or care for life. Uh, it's, it, it's really, it's a, yeah, it's a, what a moment. And you see, and, and, and Spacek, her determination and her terror kind of co-mingling in that moment, as she's just trying to do anything she can do to survive, uh, really, really come through the screen as well.
0: And, you know, it's something that I thought of uh, later in the movie when, when they're finally, because they have been making such a racket down there, about getting somewhere. At one point, uh, the, the thing that actually opens up the gates for Ed Horman to find out more is when he asks David Clannan uh, if he could get the services of the sort of secret American operatives that are down there <laughs> to help. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the ambassador wants to meet with him. And, and it's not to tell him anything. It's to say, we are not doing anything like that. There is no yeah. such thing as what you're <laughs> suggesting. <laughs> like, and then right. And then he's like, show him the morgue, show him the hospitals. Like all of a sudden, the doors open wide. And there's that other horrible scene where they go to a morgue and they're just walking through room after room of bodies.
1: Oh God. And then the camera, when the camera pans up to the, to the, to the skylight, and you see all even more bodies just piled on, on the skylight. Oh, just yeah.
0: And then, and, and one of the bodies in there is their friend. Yeah. You know, it's so horrible. Uh, it's so horrible. And, and, and one of the things that I found funny about contemporary reviews of this film was that people felt that the movie wasn't, that it pulled its punches, that it didn't show very much of the cruelty of uh, the Chilean uh, dictatorship. And, uh, you know, it's like, do you need to see people actually die? Isn't it enough to see their corpses in the yeah. street? <laughs> like, right. like, what is Costa Gavras supposed to do?
1: Yeah. And, well, <laughs> another... I was reading some reviews too. Actually, one of the other really funny ones that I read um, was Roger Ebert's review of this movie, which was a generally positive review, but he, he criticized it as a piece of filmmaking. Um, Basically he said it was show offy and in particular, yeah. And which it's not. And in particular, the scene that he criticized the most, which I think is, is a brilliant, brilliant piece of filmmaking is he got really upset. So when they're when, when um, Sissy Spacek is taking Jack lemon to talk to the neighbors about the night that, um, that uh, Charlie disappeared, the neighbors all tell a roughly similar story, but it differs slightly in the details and Costa Gavra's films basically several different versions of the same scene. Like, mm-hmm. was it an army truck that picked him up, or was it a civilian truck that picked him up? Was it plainclothes people who picked it up, him up, or were they soldiers? Like, there are these slight differences in the recollections of the, actually the elderly people who are telling them this, who live in the neighborhood. Yeah. And a lot of this is kind of about the the fog and the unknowability of life in a dictatorship and life under a coup and, and, and during the overthrow of the regime. And it's I think it's really subtly done as he kind of just shows. It's like, we know what happened. People came to the house, they tore the house apart. They kidnapped this guy, they threw him in a van and they took him away. And these minor differences don't actually contradict the, the fundamental story, which is true. But you see the way that the government instrumentalizes those little discrepancies to cast doubt on it. And you see the way that Lemon grasps at those little inconsistencies to basically continue to deny what he what is gradually dawning on him to be the truth which is that the 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 the, the government in probably in collaboration with the americans kidnapped his son from his home uh, took him probably tortured him and then killed him
0: yeah well we see uh, there's that other great flashback where Charles is talking to a guy that he sees at the restaurant in Vina del Mar, who was part of the coup, like one of Uh, the American retired Navy guys, basically boasting about what he did and talking about how he's on his way to Bolivia next. And, uh, and he's talking about the mill group. You realize that that was probably the conversation that did him in. He asked too many questions to this one guy um, and and the fact is that uh, the Chilean uh, police and the military would not have com- executed a <laughs> middle class looking American person without it being cleared.
1: Yeah, they they wouldn't have. They might they, they might have arrested him, uh, but they would they would have they would have done it uh, they would have done it for real. Like they, they would have arrested him with some sort of semblance of 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 normalcy. They might have roughed him up a little bit. Um, th- those things might have happened. But the the idea that they would they would disappear him yeah and execute him and then by the way then uh, and this is a historical fact about the the real case that this is based on as well as it, it's shown in the movie as well then um, not release the body for like seven months after it's after his death has been acknowledged which they did explicitly to prevent an autopsy which they would have done only to prevent. Uh, them from finding out that he had been tortured, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so all, all of those things happened in, you know, in order to protect any uh, insinuation of American involvement and, and to prevent anyone from ever proving what really happened to this guy so that they could maintain this kind of fiction that, oh, he may, maybe he got accidentally caught up in, in these kind of indiscriminate um, acts of violence during a revolution, but there was nothing, there's no intentionality to it. You know, it wasn't, Uh, nobody knew who he was. They didn't do this to him deliberately, which of course is not the case.
0: Well, it just so happens that I have friends of mine in what in, in Toronto. And one of the reasons why we ever met at all is because their families escaped Chile and Argentina in the early seventies, uh, from repression and from, and these people were of course lefties. They, they came to Canada instead of the United States because I guess they knew about (laughs) the United States involvement (laughs) in this stuff. Um, But a friend of mine that I went to high school with told me that, like, you know, they got in trouble with the military police uh, because they found a book on Cubism in their house.
1: (laughs) Degenerate
0: art. I guess. Or uh, her theory was that they thought that Cubism meant Cuba. You know, they were just fucking idiots. (laughs) Whoa, you got (laughs) to like, what's this?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, honestly, seeing some of the things that. Come out of right-wing American politicians these days. I wouldn't be shocked in the slightest if that were if if, if that were the case.
0: <laughs> One of the other things that people said about this movie at the time was that this movie is uh, is aimed at white liberals. That you know, this is a movie about oh, what uh, it's so terrible what happened down in Chile because Americans were uh, were victimized along with the Chilean people. Like some people thought that this movie. Uh, had the people of Chile take a back seat to the story of Americans down there. I think that's an unfair thing, and I think that was an easy comment to make in 1982. I think that there is one scene in the soccer stadium that shoots a big hole right in that argument.
1: Yeah, you you and I agree about that. Yeah, he, he, they, eventually, it's after, yeah, after Lemon has started to make a little more noise, right, and started to say the stuff about the secret police and so forth, and they, they, they allow them to go to the central soccer stadium, which if, if you know anything about the history of the Chilean coup, the, um, the the big soccer stadium in Santiago was where they, they just indiscriminately rounded people up and they brought them there. And that's basically where they tortured and killed, um, many, many, many people during the, during the coup. Um, and they go there and they hook up a microphone and they basically let, uh, Jack lemon and, uh, call him and at see if his son is there. In English. In English, yeah, in, in English. <laughs> English. And then um, one of the Chileans who is uh, who is interred there basically walks down to the fence line and yells down to them effectively, like, how nice it is that you're allowed to come here and call for your son, but no one's allowed to come here and call for me. Um, yeah. And, 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 yeah, and you realize... How even though his son has been murdered, how how the the film is subtly critiquing the privilege of being an American,
0: and then there's a very disturbing scene where basically Ed Horman finds out what happened to his son, and he goes to the embassy and they say, "Oh, we've got some great news about your son. We think that he's in the north somewhere." Like, <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> it's so so horrible. Yeah, yeah. He fi- he finds out actually, ironically, I, <laughs> somewhat. He finds out from a sort of guilt stricken. uh, Employee of the Ford Foundation, uh, (laughs) an American nonprofit that that has sort of famously worked hand in hand with 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 USAID and and other um, uh, uh, CIA partner organizations. But it's kind of the guy basically says, "Look, I I play golf," and he actually said literally, he says, "You know, I I play golf with these guys," and. Uh, I can't tell you who told me this, but your son's dead. <laughs> uh, and, and then as you right, as you say, then, then Lemon goes back to the embassy and right. And they say, Oh yeah, no, your son, he picked up. He's, he's on a beach somewhere. He, we
0: we, we all... expect him back in the States anytime. Maybe Any you should day. go home and meet him.
1: Any day now. Yeah. Like
0: they are so, I mean, th- I mean, this is the thing. I mean, nobody in the U S I mean, it's very clear that many Americans have disappeared in this giant roundup. Once Ed Horman uh, gets the pretty believable rumor that he was in fact shot dead in the stadium three days after he was captured, he tells David Clennon this and David Clennon says, what? Who told you that? (laughs)
1: <laughs> Clennon, I, I got to give him particular props here because aside from being a terrific actor we in, in a, a prior appearance I made on, on your show we talked about him because he has a, a great turn as a kind of sleazy uh, lawyer in being there um, yeah. but Clennon is himself um, a uh, truly a lefty in good standing and he famously um, refused to vote uh, for Zero Dark Thirty for the Academy Award, because he said that it um, uh, it embraced and promoted torture and 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 painted torture in a positive light, and yep. was like uh, roundly criticized for taking that for taking that stance, and and absolutely would not back down from it. Here's what a
0: king David Clennon was when Missing opened in in California. He went and made personal appearances outside the Cinema Center in Westwood and the Hollywood Pacific Theater in Hollywood. When audiences were coming out, he was on the sidewalk handing out leaflets that contended that the CIA-sponsored coup in Chile was currently being repeated in El Salvador, with U.S. military and finances supporting the overthrow of the government. So he was asking the viewers of this movie to write to their congressman, urging them to protest this uh, thing. So, I yeah. mean, this guy is a boss. Yeah, he's, he he's terrific.
1: Look, it's very obvious that you're harboring some misconception regarding our role here. What is your role here, besides endorsing a regime that murders thousands of human beings? Let's level with each other, sir. If you hadn't been personally involved in this unfortunate incident, you'd be sitting at home, complacent and more or less oblivious to all of this. This mission is pledged to protect American interests, our (sighs) interests, Mr. Hamilton, not mine. There are over 3,000 U.S. firms doing business down here, and those are American interests. In other words, your interest. I'm concerned with the preservation of a way of life. And a damn good one.
0: Maybe that's why there's nobody out there. What uh, probably upset the U.S. State Department the most uh, was the fact that Jack Lemon uh, plays a very believable performance as uh, how someone gets radicalized. That's how it felt to me. Like he's a guy who believes everything he was told in civics class about the United States, who finds out the hard way, uh, what happened to his son and in a very, very sad and tragic way, he gets to find out who his son was with his death.
1: Yeah, that's right. Because he, he, it, it, almost in the way this is sort of, Um, parallel to the sort of uh, uh, American paternalism towards its South American victims. Right. But Lemon quite literally has a paternalistic attitude towards his son, Charlie. He, he views him as, he basically doesn't view him as an adult. Like he's, uh, Charlie has never taken up the, those sort of like, um, totems of adulthood that he's supposed to you know a traditional marriage traditional family settling down getting a regular job and lemon like views him as a child and in some ways he's he's not entirely wrong because charlie is naive and he, and he is flighty in a way and he hasn't maybe necessarily found his way in the world exactly yet but shay's portrayal of him which of course we see mostly in flashback shows him as a Sensitive, intelligent, um, thoughtful, kind, um, and and perceptive man Mm -hmm. um, who is worthy of respect and worthy of love and clearly commands the love and respect of the friends and, and the community that he surrounds himself with. And it is very sad to see Jack Lemmon realize that about his son and realize that he had never given himself the chance to experience that uh, side of his son and that characteristic of his son um, until until it was too late and now he can only experience it through others memories because uh, because his son was executed uh, mm-hmm. by his own government or at least with the cooperation of his own government
0: and that's what's so beautiful about that that scene in the hotel there's a sort of a a little symbolic earthquake moment in the movie where yeah. the, everybody has to leave their rooms. Cause there's an earthquake. Cause of course, Chile's right on a giant fault line. Yeah. Uh, but then he has a nice uh, little drink at, in the bar with uh Sissy Spacek. And he says to her emphatically, he says that this past week, I feel like my heart has been torn out of me. And, yeah. and he says that you're the bravest woman I know.
1: Yeah, uh, a scene. Uh, in, in, it's a finely drawn detail, but it's it like the include, like the way that they just sort of subtly gesture at his faith. He's a Christian scientist, and so they they show him at one point in a reading room. They emphasize that that he's his his Bible is important to him. But another just teeny tiny detail that I noticed on my last watching of this is that when he during that scene. Um, he gets a drink for Sissy Spacek, but he himself does not drink. No. He has a Coca-Cola. Yeah. And it's like, and it's, it's funny because that sort of, he's, he's clearly, he's a teetotaler, right? But that's almost a kind of like a little parallel to his son's innocence. Like that's the almost like little slightly infantile quality of Jack Lemon that even in this moment of utter horror and, 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 and tragedy as he, realizes the depth of his loss and realizes the depth of his admiration for his his son's wife he's still he's still just drinking a coke mm-hmm. like a like a 10-year-old boy and i just i think that's such a great little production detail that they yeah. slipped in there that tells you something about the character just so thoughtful
0: and you know you also can also point out that like one of the reasons why the coup uh, took place was to protect American interests, including the Coca-Cola. (laughs) company.
1: That's right. (laughs) But
0: yeah, no, it's a magnificent performance. I I realized when I was watching it that I often underrate uh, Jack Lemmon. Like, you know, like, I mean, he's a great actor, but I, I, I forget sometimes just what a
1: terrific, dramatic actor he was. Yeah, I think that in a, I think that those kind of a great comic actor like Lemon, they often are really good in these types of dramatic roles because the 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 key ninety percent of the time the key to great comic acting is knowing how to play something um, totally straight, right? But then the 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 inverse of that is I think that um, the great dramatic acting requires a comedians. Um, sense for timing mm-hmm. um and i think that his his ability to kind of play to play it straight but to have those like kind of like little subtle notes and ticks here and there and to just know exactly when to respond to his scene partner um is something that comes from doing comedy for all those years um like his chemistry with sissy spacex is like how do you watch those scenes and not think about the odd couple yeah yeah you know the, this this film as well as you said uh, you know some americans criticized it for pulling its punches but it also pissed off a whole lot of americans as well we were you you, you were kind enough to uh, inform me of the fact that there was uh, there is an entire uh, george f will column denouncing this move this movie and its anti-americanism and 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 scoffing at the idea that america would ever have anything to do with a coup and certainly had nothing to do with a coup in Chile. A fact, that's like broadly acknowledged now. Like it's not even an open secret. Like everybody just acknowledges publicly that the United States was involved in the coup in Chile.
0: The essay was called Missing from Missing, Truth and Fairness. <laughs> <laughs> and he wrote, this is the best paragraph. He said, his movie is one of the hit and run acts of cowardice called docudramas a label that is a license to lie and smear, using references to real people and events to give a patina of authenticity to innuendos and fabrications. Universal's president announces himself proud of this totally true story, which is showing in 600 theaters, grossing millions. The wages of anti-Americanism are handsome.
1: (laughs) My favorite line is when he says... Only once does the movie hint at what Iende did that provoked the military coup. <laughs> it, was like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was like classic, like wife beater logic here. You know, know. like <laughs> um, the fact that you could piss off a prig like George F. Will enough that, to have him write a Washington Post column, like because this is—he's not a film critic, right? I mean, this is an, this was an op-ed piece for a major American newspaper just getting all red and mad about, about a movie for, for, for its grave insinuations about, uh, about our boys. And, you know, particularly this is like 19, this movie came out in 82. 82? Yeah. So, I mean, we had, so you had two, you know, a decade of, you know, anti-Vietnam war movies and, and, and sort of a whole tradition of, Uh, cinematic skepticism towards, you know, sort of American foreign policy and wars. And like, this is the one that particularly provoked him. It's uh, interesting, I guess, to say the least.
0: (laughs) Right when the movie was about to come out, the State Department released a three-page statement taking issue with the movie. They had three big problems with this movie. They said that first was the accusation that the United States diplomats in Chile portrayed as heartless in the film did nothing to locate the missing Mr. Horman, a freelance writer, or to help his distraught wife and father in their search for the man. They also were upset about the implication that the United States had somehow conspired in his death or possibly ordered him executed because of what he knew about the US's involvement in the overthrow of the left-wing government. And finally, audiences are left with the clear impression that the United States played a large role in this coup. The thing is, these are all true. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, well, it, is well, now, it is now understood that this is all true.
1: I, I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I uh, anyone who reads uh, government documents or anything written, anything that's been written by somebody's uh, legal general counsel um, knows certain words to look for so like for example in that statement you will note that they take pains to say we're offended that you would imply that the United states had a large role in the Chilean coup you'll notice that they do not deny that the United states had a role in the coup they simply say oh it wasn't large and of course what constitutes large you, you know so it, it's a it's a great lawyerly way to uh to sort of to effectively admit something while making it appear that you're denying it.
0: The ambassador of Chile during this period, during the during the uh nineteen seventy-three coup, launched a libel suit against Costa Gavras and Universal and the author of the book saying that the movie uh was uh, libelous, that it damaged his reputation. Uh and the libel suit was launched right when the Academy Award nominations were announced, trying I guess trying to put a big uh burst the balloon of this movie winning any Academy awards. It did win for screenplay. Uh, yeah. as a result, the movie was, uh, while this libel suit dragged on in the courts for about three years, it meant that the movie was not released on home video until the late eighties.
1: Ah, uh, but, uh, if I remember, uh, uh correctly, it, though uh, it did, they did drag it out, but, um, long enough that when it was released, I believe it was simultaneously released on VHS and on an early version of LaserDisc. Oh, okay. So, the 12, the 12 inch ones.
0: <laughs> ah, okay. So maybe, maybe its initial release on video was unscathed, but uh, the movie was not released on DVD until 2006.
1: Uh, astonishing. Uh, we ha- we didn't really talk about soundtrack too much um, on either of these movies, but um, on State of Siege, um, uh, uh worked with his longtime um, collaborator, um, whose name I will always mispronounce, but Theodorakis. Um, yeah, Mikus and, Theodorakis. Um, who, who did a ter- it was a terrific, terrific score that incorporated a lot of really interesting elements of um, a sort of South, South American music into it. Mm-hmm. But on, and then on Missing, he collaborated um, with Vangelis and Um, what a, what an amazing 1982, uh, that guy had because he did both Missing, which has an amazing score and also, uh, uh, Blade Runner in the same year.
0: Yeah. And the, uh, there's a love theme in the soundtrack for Missing that is a staple of, uh, television commercials and stuff ever since.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kostogoffers uses soundtrack to great effect. I think in, in in movies, he, 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 he knows how to use it to complement the story that he's telling in a, in a way that I, I think is underappreciated because Mm -hmm. I I think that soundtracks, even great soundtracks often kind of become a little bit showy in a film. You know, they want you to notice them. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Kostoglavovs, they they just they, they they add to the the overall aura of the film. That, that's true. And Z is another one where, where that happens, where he kind of uses um, that he 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 lets you know where you are, even though he never says the name mm-hmm. of the country. Partly through the partly through the score. Same thing happens in State of Siege, like. You, yeah. you never you never says this is Uruguay, but you just, you hear it all around you and, and the score is part of how that happens.
0: You know, Costa Gavris' overall point is that this movie could take place anywhere. This is like yeah. US foreign policy in South America. It doesn't matter whether or not it's Uruguay or
1: Chile. Right. Yes. And uh, as uh, greatest of all time, David Clennon uh, pointed out, it was in fact then happening again somewhere else in that, in, at that point in in El Salvador, yeah, ten um,
0: years after the events in Missing, like it's a never-ending problem. And yeah. didn't Bolivia just get uh, a coup a little
1: while ago too? Yeah, and you know, and uh, and, and throughout, you know, throughout the eighties um, in in Nicaragua, and um, and as as uh, both films that we've discussed actually point out, prior to um, both. Uh, uh, Uruguay and, um, and Chile, it, the military dictatorship taking over in Brazil, where some of our characters, some of our American characters, quite explicitly say, um, in, in the case of State of Siege, Santori had previously been in Brazil. In um, Missing, David Clennon's character says, oh, my dream would be to be assigned to Brazil. <laughs> um, and, and so, this, yeah, this notion that these they just keep hopping from one country to the next, destabilizing them in turn, um, is really kind of hammered home by, by these by these movies.
0: Criterion put out Z, State of Siege, The Confession, and Missing. Missing is currently out of print, but I believe the other three Costa Costa-Gavras films are now available for streaming on Criterion.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, st- Z and State of Siege definitely are, and I, I should say, I mean, you know, not like I'm not. I promise, I'm not trying to like get a free subscription or anything. But um, the uh, State of Siege and Z um, on Criterion are both. Um, uh, have both been like remastered and look amazing. They they look really really good. Both of these movies, it, we should say, as as heart wrenching and disturbing um, as they are, and as much as they correctly make you feel guilty for being an American if you happen to be an American, um, they're really great movies. I mean, you 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 these are not movies that you like get up to make more popcorn and go to the bathroom. They're totally enthralling. Like once you start, you can't stop.
0: I've seen missing a few times. And when I rewatched it for the show, it was still on the edge of my seat, still uh, heartbreaking. Um, It's a movie that I think only gets better with time. And it also makes me a little bit sad that nobody's operating on this level these days.
1: Well, I'm, I'm sure that, um, that the next, um, Marvel post-credit sequence will will bravely show how um, Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury was, in fact, despite being a hero, a supposed hero, responsible for the recent um, attempted coup in Bolivia, and uh, and that brave statement um, by whatever a former Oscar winner they uh, they enslave to make. Um, <laughs> Eternals part seven <laughs> yeah. is going to really change minds uh, here in America. I, th-
0: I, th- I heard a rumor that uh, captain Marvel two takes place in Ottawa and that uh, Brie Larson is going to uh, <laughs> throw all the trucks into the Gatineau river.
1: <coughs> Co- uh, Costagophorus is still kicking. So uh, I, I would like it god help us if we if if this episode curses us and they and they give him a hundred million dollars uh to to make uh the next reboot of x-men or whatever (laughs) (laughs) oh my god jacob as always
0: a pleasure to have you on the show where can people find you on the twitter machine
1: Uh, people can find me on Twitter, um, at Jake backpack. Um, and as, uh, Jesse, you were kind enough to say at the beginning uh, of the show, um, I'm, uh, published pretty frequently in places like Gawker and the new Republic. Uh, and you can find, uh, my novels and nonfiction book wherever fine books are sold.
0: And, and, uh, congratulations on your new
1: house. Oh yes, uh, thank you. I am currently watching the uh, sunset through the trees from my undisclosed location in the beautiful uh, Blue Ridge Zone of the Appalachian Mountains.
0: Beautiful. As uh, as you know, uh, I love talking to you, and you are welcome back anytime. Uh, we'll we'll hopefully have another. If they make if they make another good movie, maybe you can come on and we can talk about it. <laughs>
1: uh see you in 2027 man
0: (laughs) jacob backtrack thank you so much for joining me thank you before we go just a reminder that we do have a patreon patrons of junk filter get access to additional bonus episodes every month to become a patron please go to patreon.com slash junk filter coming soon to the podcast Aaron and Carly from Hit Factory are returning. We're going to be discussing the 2003 thriller Shattered Glass. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. Thank you for listening.